This is the Nietzsche Podcast. So we're going to pick up where we left off at section four. Uh, Nietzsche writes, quote, Now the dream analogy may throw some light on the naive artist. Let us imagine the dreamer, in the midst of the illusion of the dream world, and without disturbing it, he calls out to himself, It is a dream I will dream on. What must we infer? That he experiences a deep inner joy and in dream contemplation. On the other hand, to be able to dream with this inner joy in contemplation, he must have completely lost sight of the waking reality and its ominous obtrusiveness. Guided by the dream reading Apollo, we may interpret all these phenomena in roughly this way. End quote. So, to recall to mind what we talked about last time, Nietzsche references uh, how Schopenhauer speaks of the man wrapped up in the veil of Maya. Maya in Sanskrit is illusion. And this is correlates with uh, what Apollo is and what this art force is in mankind because Apollo weaves these brilliant illusions such as the ability to individuate, draw boundaries, um, and make possible the idea of the self-image and self-reflection. He says to himself, it is a dream I shall dream on because, as Nietzsche alleges, we all sort of have a deep joy in dreams, even as they might be negative or stressful or um, placing us in a unusual situation or a situation in which we're in the presence of gods or monsters or great calamities. We always have this uh, distance, this dispassionate uh, feeling that is in the back of our minds and our deepest intuition, at least this is Nietzsche's uh, assertion, that allows us to uh, be hold the dream at sort of a distance, right? And to recall again something from last week, we talked about the Olympian middle world of art. What Nietzsche means by that is the Olympian gods who are an Apollinean creation. They are these idealistic shining images and they're the middle world of art because this is in the middle of where man, man stands on one side, nature is on the other, and we, where life is on the other, uh, the, true, the true nature of life, the, you know, what we might call, because Nietzsche would say that on the other side of this veil of Maya in the middle uh, is sort of the, the brutal Dionysian truth of Salinas, right? Better never to have been born, you're this wretched ephemeral race. Um, and so in the middle between man and the brutal truth is this veil of Maya, is Apollo, is this boundary, right? Um, and so that's, uh, he's just sort of calling, calling this to mind. And this is how he's describing the naive artist like Homer. Homer is sort of the um, epitome of the naive artist in Nietzsche's eyes. He is the Apollinian artist at the dawn of a culture who sort of erects this wall this uh, shining wall of uh, illusion. Okay, so continuing, Nietzsche says, though it is certain that of the two halves of our existence, the waking and the dreaming states, the former appeals to us as infinitely preferable, more important, excellent, and worthy of being lived, indeed as that which is alone lived. So to break off from the text for a moment, waking life is... uh, always more interesting to us in comparison, in the conscious light of comparison. But he says, yet in relation to that mysterious ground of our being of which we are the phenomena, I should, paradoxical as it may seem, maintain the very opposite estimate of the value of dreams. For the more clearly I perceive in nature those 
omnipotent art impulses, and in them an ardent longing for illusion, for redemption through illusion, the more I feel myself impelled to the metaphysical assumption that the truly existent primal unity, eternally suffering and contradictory, also needs the rapturous vision, the pleasurable illusion for its continuous redemption, uh, end quote. So it's very fascinating. So Nietzsche, Nietzsche is saying that he has the opposite estimation of dreams or that he has grown to have the opposite estimation of dreams, meaning the mere appearance of the dream world that in no way corresponds to any sort of objective reality, even more so removed than the mere appearance of our, <clears throat> you know, our sense phenomena that we encounter. This is even uh, more illusory than that, right? <laughs> because it's entirely... Um, we can even perceive from within the world of our sense phenomena that the world of dreams is this inward individual world of fantasy that doesn't correspond to anything external. And so it's total illusion. And yet Nietzsche says, I've come to see this ardent longing for illusion as a inherent part of nature and something that indeed nature seeks for its redemption through illusion. Um, there might be something of an influence there from Schopenhauer and his idea that as we're manifestations of the ever-striving will, um, the redemption from the pain of willing can come to us through aesthetic contemplation, through the encounter with this, the sublime. And so the representation of reality, pure representation without any, you know, willing or desiring content within it, um, representation empty of content because to Schopenhauer will is the true actual inner content of things of objects, including ourselves. Um, it's something like a redemption through illusion. Now Nietzsche, I think even from this early point is differs from Schopenhauer even now. And that, you know, he's, I, I, I guess I'm just saying, I think he's taking influence from Schopenhauer in Con in form, if not in content, right? In the notion that you could be redeeming life through mere appearance. And what he seems to be saying here is that this uh, will in Schopenhauerian terms, or how he's been putting it throughout the text, this primordial pain and contradiction, this eternally suffering and contradictory primal un unity, uh, it, an inevitable thing that it does is it gives rise to these illusions, so Nietzsche is sounding very Eastern here because this could be very much in line with what a Vedantist might say or a Taoist or maybe even a Buddhist. And again, that might be the Schopenhauer influence. I think the content might be a little different because Nietzsche is coming down from this early date on the side of appearance and saying, well, isn't that wonderful that appearance is redeeming uh, this primordial contradiction? Um, that mere appearance, mere illusion is the force that can do this. This is why even in his later work, he correlates art with life and life with deception and life with uh, <clears throat> mere appearance and all, all these things. A little further down in the paragraph, he says, uh, quote, if for the moment we do not consider the question of our own reality, if we conceive of our empirical existence and of that of the world in general as a continuously manifested representation of the primal unity, we uh, shall then have to look upon the dream as a mere appearance of mere appearance, hence as a still higher appeasement of the primordial desire 
for mere appearance. And that is why the innermost heart of nature feels that ineffable joy in the naive artist and the naive work of art, which is likewise only mere appearance of mere appearance, end quote. So that's very fascinating. Um, picking up from that Schopenhauerian framework or pseudo-Schopenhauerian framework, the post-Kantian framework, um, Nietzsche sees the phenomena rather than the noumenon as the relevant, uh, what would you say? That is where we should, that is where life is, right? That is where our lives are. That is where all of our experiences. So this is his, this is a pre prelude or prerequisite to Nietzsche's eventual abolition of the uh, true world. But it's funny because the way that he frames it here is that you could say the noumenon is redeemed by the phenomena. And because phenomena, mere appearance, illusion has this redeeming quality to it we beings who live within the world of phenomena we create still a higher level of mere appearance within this world of mere appearance just like i was talking about earlier where the dream is not uh it's illusory but not in the same way as like a philosopher might say our senses are illusory because even us within the world of the senses can easily say that some one person has a dream that we all all of us don't have access to the experience happening in that dream. It's an entirely self-contained fantasy, and it doesn't affect anything outside of that subject who's having the dream. And Nietzsche's saying it's this is the same way with art, is it's a mere appearance of mere appearance. Um, you know, when you look at one of those Dutch landscape paintings or still lifes that Schopenhauer loves so much, uh, that is a mere appearance of mere appearance. And so Nietzsche's found something interesting in Schopenhauer that there is a redemption through appearance. And uh, that's also very Hegelian, by the way. So, um, I don't know, make from that what you will, but what, what Nietzsche is doing here, in a way, it's very much commensurate with sort of the, the overall direction of where German idealism was heading at the time. <clears throat> and, uh, okay, then Nietzsche talks about a painting by Raphael, his Transfiguration. Um, I would say to go and look up that, painting yourself you can find it online very easily because it's a bit difficult to really get what Nietzsche's saying if you don't look at the painting but um we'll just move on to the next sort of philosophical idea in this uh, paragraph he says quote from this mere appearance arises like ambrosial vapor a new visionary world of mere appearances Invisible to those wrapped in the first appearance, a radiant floating in purest bliss, a serene contemplation beaming from wide open eyes. Um, and so, and then he says a little further down that Apollinean world of beauty and its substratum, the terrible wisdom of Salinas, and intuitively, intuitively we comprehend their necessary interdependence. Apollo, however, again appears to us as the apotheosis of the Principium Individuationis, in which alone is consummated that perpetually attained goal of the primal unity, its redemption through mere appearance. Okay, so again, he's what he, the Apollinian world and its substratum is the terrible wisdom of Salinas. So you have mankind, and between us and the immediate ontological reality, the primordial, primordial eternally suffering and contradictory will, we erect this illusory world of art, it's like the walls of a city. It, safes, it safeguards mankind by overcoming it. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, Apollinian impulse the, that comes to us through our natural ability for dreaming. Uh, this is represented here in this passage as Apollo 
becoming the apotheosis of the principium individuationist, that it is by this illusory veil that we create our individuality. And um, Nietzsche seems to imply here yet again that this is the fact that this is what happened shows that this is what the will desires naturally is to quote unquote redeem itself from its primordial state of suffering through this mere appearance through this illusion that arises um nietzsche says quote with his sublime gestures talking about apollo here he shows us how necessary is the entire world of suffering and that by means of it the individual may be impelled to realize the redeeming vision and then sunk in contemplation of it sit quietly in his tossing bark amid the waves end quote so reference to the earlier passage of the fisherman sitting in the boat on stormy seas that that is what the individual is like you know apollo is the one who his, his the magic circle we draw around the human world to carve it off from the primordial chaos is like the little ship made of frail bark on the uh, being tossed on the seas um okay next paragraph Quote, if we conceive of it at all as imperative and mandatory, this apotheosis of individuation knows but one law, the individual, the delimiting of the boundaries of the individual, measure in the Hellenic sense. Apollo, as ethical deity, exacts measure of his disciples, and to be able to maintain it, he requires self-knowledge. And so side by side with the aesthetic necessity for beauty, there occurs the demands, know thyself, and nothing in excess. Consequently, overweening pride and excess are regarded as the truly hostile demons of the non-Apollinean sphere, hence as characteristics of the pre-Apollinean age, that of the Titans, and of the extra-Apollinean world, that of the barbarians. Because of his titanic love for man, Prometheus must be torn to pieces by vultures. Because of his excessive wisdom, which could solve the riddle of the Sphinx, Oedipus must be plunged into a bewildering vortex of crime. Thus did the Delphic god interpret the Greek past. Uh, end quote. So <laughs> it's interesting. So Nietzsche is showing us how, for one, just at the end there, the Greek vices or the Greek sins come from nothing in excess and that the sin of Prometheus is his excess, his titanic love of man. The Titans symbolize this pre-Apollinian age because they're huge, they're... Um, excessive, they're extreme in, in everything. And he says that this also was the characteristics of the Greeks, and you can find this throughout their writings, always apply to the barbarians, that these are like wild animals who can't control their passions. And so when we look at the history of Greek society, and this is something we'll talk about when we get into next season, where we're going to talk about the ancient city by De Coulanger, but the entire society of ancient Greece um, was based on these completely independent family structures where property was absolutely private and inviolable, where you didn't have a shared boundary between lands even. You would mark off the boundary of your land and then there had to be some space and then there would be the marked off boundary of another family's land. And your ancestral lands were where you buried your dead and that's where their spirits lived. So while they had absolute control over their like independent little fiefdom, each family, the little micro fiefdom of just probably some small land just to support themselves. Um, you know, and some of them had slaves and clients and some had very large families where there were lots of branches. 
Um, nevertheless, the property was absolutely indivisible and couldn't be sold. The idea of like leaving a will was sort of unknown to them because it's always just the eldest brother inherits everything. Everyone answers to him. End of story. And all the religion was a domestic worship, domestic cults, which are absolutely private and specific to each family because they were worshiping their own dead ancestors. And even when they began to federate into bigger groups like tribes and eventually form cities, these familial religions on the one hand, and then the tribal religion that united them all, these all remained independent from each other. Um, it was just sort of, okay, you still have all of your domestic familial, familial religions. They're not merging together. We're just going to also have one religion in common of a set of divinities that protects the whole city. And each city in ancient Greek uh, in the ancient Greek polis, the city-states, had their own deities, their own protectors that they invoked. And even though they might call them similar names, um, they were conceived of in the earliest days as being completely separate and individual. My point in all of this uh, is that that kind of structure of society, they, they literally believed that little patches of earth were sectioned off right? And that within those domains, a god lived or a set of gods, and they ruled over that patch of earth. And they were, you know, every deity was provincial. Every rule of law was provincial. Every, like, family's dwelling place, like his temple, was unique to himself. And so this was a boundary-drawing culture in many ways. And it went even into the into the uh, the details of their religious beliefs, right? Of how they worshipped and what their afterlife was going to be like. This is all um, a very individual question that was cut off by boundaries and kept secret from everyone else. Um, and then, of course, we have he invokes here the demands: know thyself and nothing in excess. Nothing in excess can only really be observed if you know yourself, right? You can only aim for the golden mean if you have self-awareness, if you can call to mind your past actions, evaluate them, compare them to what better or worse actions might look like in any given situation, apply to them a common standard. Unless you have that capacity for self-reflection, um, being able to keep your passions from flaring into excess is going to be an impossible task. And so Apollo, as Nietzsche points out, is also an ethical deity. He's also in charge of sort of the, the moral spirit of uh, the Greek. And so it's a morality that we don't quite recognize because, again, we've been had the Christian morality inculcated into us over 2,000 years. But, um, you know, Oedipus's crime, his initial crime is that he has an excessive curiosity and excessive wisdom and he could solve the riddle of the Sphinx. Um, Prometheus has an excessive love for mankind. We, we don't normally think of things like wisdom or love as being things you can have too much of, but the nothing in excess dictum upon which the Greek society is based, which it finds its foundation in this principle of drawing these rigid boundaries and thus individuating um, that is demanded that even excessive love be a crime, right? And again, this is the silent hostility to Christianity because 
I mean, you could say the entire Christian religion is based on the idea of such an overflowing excessive love that it can compensate for the the sins of the entire world, right? That's the story of of Jesus' sacrifice. So in the next paragraph, um, Nietzsche says, the effects wrought by the Dionysian also seemed titanic and barbaric to the Apollinean Greek, while at the same time, he could not conceal from himself that he too was inwardly related to these overthrown titans and heroes. Indeed, he had to recognize even more than this. Despite all its beauty and moderation, his entire existence rested on a hidden substratum of suffering and of knowledge revealed to him by the Dionysian. And behold, Apollo could not live without Dionysus. The Titanic and the Barbaric were in the last analysis as necessary as the Apollinian. End quote. And so these twin artistic forces depend on one another. And it's, it's interesting. It's, so he sees himself as related to these overthrown titans and heroes. But what's more, the Dionysian uh, rituals have revealed that hidden substratum of suffering behind the veil of Maya that Apollo has erected. And so, um, you know, he, the, the, the Greek feels in himself the great excessive passions that have to be brought under the control of moderation. So he sees the Titan and the barbarian within himself. And um, in the Eleusinian mysteries and in the loss of self-consciousness and the destruction of the self and return to the primordial unity of these Dionysian mysteries, he beholds that uh, awful primordial uh, you know, pain and contradiction. Okay. So next paragraph, Nietzsche says, let us imagine how into this world built on mere appearance and moderation and artificially damned up there penetrated in tones ever more bewitching and alluring the ecstatic sound of the Dionysian festival. How in these strains, all of nature's excess and pleasure, grief and knowledge became audible even in piercing shrieks. And let us ask ourselves what the psalmodizing artist of Apollo with his phantom harp sound could mean in the face of this demonic folk song. The muses of the arts of illusion pale before an art that, in its intoxication, spoke the truth. The wisdom of Salinas cried, Woe, woe to the serene Olympians. The individual, with all his restraint and proportion, succumbed to the self-oblivion of the Dionysian states, forgetting the precepts of Apollo. Excess revealed itself as truth. Contradiction, the bliss born of pain, spoke out from the very heart of nature. And so, wherever the Dionysian prevailed, the Apollinian was checked and destroyed. But on the other hand, it is equally certain that wherever the first Dionysian onslaught was successfully withstood, the authority and majesty of the Delphic god exhibited itself as more rigid and menacing than ever. For to me, the Doric state and Doric art are explicable only as a permanent military encampment of the Apollinian. Only incessant resistance to the titanic barbaric nature of the Dionysian could account for the long survival of an art so defiantly prim and so encompassed with bulwarks, a training so warlike and rigorous and a political structure so cruel and relentless. End quote. So, you know, the breaking down of boundaries of the Dionysian is absolutely rejected when we look at a state like Sparta, which is based on slavery, warfare, absolute uh, dehumanization of the stranger and the foreigner, um, and all of these rigid uh, rules of religious um, rights that have to be scrupulously upheld. Um, 
And so meanwhile, so, you know, Nietzsche, again, is, is talking about this continual sublation and how um, it's interesting. He's saying, you know, we need illusion to in order to be redeemed from this world of suffering. And yet the Dionysian, which embodies this um, terrible wisdom of Salinas, is so powerful. And it's better conveyed in his image when he says, you know, what, what is the, the artist of Apollo with his little kithra or harp? What is, I mean, what is that compared, you know, plucking and chanting to this regular, predictable, um, little melodious rhythm? Uh, what is that compared with the pounding drums and the fluting and the shrieking and the drunken dancing and intoxication of these Dionysian cults? I mean, it's a bit like saying, you know, like you're going to like, <laughs> it's like having like, uh, you know, uh, What's that singer-songwriter? I'm trying to remember his name. I'll, I'll just use somebody. Uh, oh, John Mayer. John Mayer. I guess he's like a blues guy now, but do you remember like old John Mayer when it was singer-songwriter stuff? Like having him follow up after like Slayer just played, right? In comparison, after you get really amped up uh, at this like absolute like revelrous, like chaotic, um, crazy, uh, you know, cacophony and harmonies of tones and dissonance and, um, you know, this spontaneous intoxicated ecstasy. What does the like regular moderated life of Apollo even offer in, in comparison to that? Um, but he's saying wherever it did withstand, you have examples like Sparta where he's like the boundaries of their society, their political structure is so cruel and relentless. Their training is so warlike and rigorous. And then their aesthetic is so prim, so encompassed within bulwarks. It's he's it says, I can only see it as just this little fortress of the Apollinean resisting the Dionysian, like leaning into their Apollinean impulses so heavily in order to preserve themselves and their identity and what they are against the um, pleasure, the ecstasy of just dissolution of uh, collapsing back into nature. And so he says in the next paragraph, Nietzsche continues, quote, up to this point, we have simply enlarged upon the observation made at the beginning of the essay that the Dionysian and the Apollinian in new births ever following and mutually augmenting one another controlled the Hellenic genius. And that out of the age of bronze with its wars of the Titans and its rigorous folk philosophy, the Homeric world developed under the sway of the Apollinian impulse to beauty that this naive splendor was again overwhelmed by an influx of the Dionysian, and against this new power, the Apollinian rose to the austere majesty of Doric art and the Doric view of the world. And so, take aside there, for one, not much to say in commentary, great summary of what we've said so far, good job summarizing Nietzsche. Um, but notice again, it's, the, it's because of the challenge of the Dionysian that the austere majesty of Doric art rises, Right? So through these conflicts, through this conflict, these two forces are actually mutually enhancing and strengthening each other. Uh, Nietzsche continues, quote, if amid the strife of these two hostile principles, the older Hellenic history thus falls into four great periods of art, we are now impelled to inquire after the final goal of these developments and processes, lest perchance we should regard the last attained period, the period of Doric art, as the climax and aim of these artistic impulses. And here the sublime and celebrated art of Attic tragedy and the dramatic dithyram present itself as the common goal of both these tendencies, whose mysterious union after many long and precursory struggles found glorious consummation in this child, 
at once Antigone and Cassandra, end quote. And so um, there we have it. The reason why tragedy is born out of these twin impulses of art is because it is the, when they are both brought together, they both naturally drive toward that end. And Nietzsche is going to tell us why in the following chapters. And on the last comment, um, Kaufman writes in a footnote that Sophocles' Antigone is here a representative of the Apollinean, while Aeschylus's Cassandra is associated with the Dionysian. Cassandra, of course, if you've ever heard the term Cassandra complex, that refers to this character, Cassandra, who has premonitions. She has visions of the future of calamities happening, tragic events happening. And so Cassandra sounds the... Uh, she sounds the warning of the fall of civilization, the collapse of the Apollinean order, right? Um, which is, uh, whenever that is interrupted, that is where the Dionysian, the primordial pain and contradiction emerge again. Uh, when it comes to Antigone, um, she represents um, sort of filial piety or filiality, family loyalty, um, loyalty to the family um, uh, the uh, pious loyalty to the family and like religious faith, right? Um, and so that's why she's an Apollinian uh, character. Um, funnily enough, so Vilyamovitz, uh, what was his name? Ulrich uh, von Vilyamovitz Mullendorf, who was the philologist who excoriated Nietzsche the most for uh, Birth of Tragedy. Kaufman notes in his footnote that uh, Vilyamovitz said, uh, quote, whoever explains these last words to which Mephistopheles' remark about the witch's arithmetic applies receives a suitable reward from me, end quote. So he's basically saying uh, when Nietzsche says that tragedy, after many long and precursory struggles, finds its birth and glorious consummation, its glorious consummation of the Apollinian and Dionysian and the birth of this child and its Antigone and Cassandra, the meaning, as Kaufman alleges, is that... Both of those characters are tragic figures. They're famous, you know, archetypal examples of uh, tragic characters. But they both represent, um, they lean towards both either the Apollinian or the Dionysian. Both types of characters can be portrayed. And Vilyamovitz, uh, when he talks about the the witch's arithmetic, that is uh, in Faust where uh, the witch does a spell where she references all these numbers and uh, it makes no sense. And Faust kind of asks Mephisto, what is she saying? And, and Mephisto says, uh, it's just nonsense. Don't worry about it. Um, the last couplet, I think, is men throughout history, men always think that if as long as they hear words, there must be some meaning. And so Vlyamovitz is just saying Nietzsche is just talking nonsense here. But I think Kaufman's correct uh, that uh, like when we explain it that way, one is Apollinian, the other is Dionysian. It makes perfect sense. OK, so section five. Um, Nietzsche says, quote, we now approach the real goal of our investigation, which is the directed which is directed toward the knowledge of the Dionysian Apollinian genius and its art product, or at least some feeling for an understanding of the mystery of this union. Here we shall begin by seeking the first evidence in Greece of that new germ, which subsequently developed into tragedy in the dramatic dithyram. The ancients themselves give us a symbolic answer when they place the faces of Homer and Archilochus as the forefathers and torchbearers of Greek poetry, side by side on gems, sculptures, etc., with the sure feeling that consideration should be given only to these two, 
equally completely original from whom a stream of fire flows over the whole of later Greek history. Homer, the aged, self-absorbed dreamer, the type of the Apollonian naive artist, now beholds with astonishment the passionate head of the warlike votary of the Muses, Archilochus, who was hunted savagely through life. Um, end quote. So, uh, Archilochus, he's a Greek poet. Um, he, I've quoted him before, uh, that, uh, notable quotation he has of, I know how to lead up the, uh, fair song of Lord Dionysus, my wits thunderstruck with wine. And so, of course, he represents the Dionysian, um, figure and Homer, the playwright, um, represents the Apollonian. And he's already, Nietzsche's already sort of used Homer as his, uh, archety- archetypal Apollonian, uh, artist throughout the book so far. And so that's sort of unsurprising. And so we have the poet and the playwright, you know, um, it, it makes sense too, because the, just in terms of the, the medium, right? So the playwright is writing something which has to have like a narrative structure it has to have some logic to its form, whereas poetry in the Greek times is understood as a muse seizing you and speaking through you. So Archilochus gives himself up to religious ecstasy in order to produce his art, whereas Homer is a, he is the, um, you know, uh, naive artist guided by the shining light of Apollo. And um, there's some, there's some parts here about subjectivity and objectivity. This was certainly an important uh, issue to Nietzsche that I don't think is quite as important uh, in hindsight. But um, again, it's it's something that he is uh, feels he has to address, uh, address because of the milieu of German idealism that he is in and that he is addressing himself to. So he says, quote, modern aesthetics by way of interpretation can only add that here the first objective artist confronts the first subjective artist. But this interpretation helps us little because we know the subjective artist only as the poor artist. And throughout the entire range of art, we demand, first of all, the conquest of the subjective, redemption from the ego, and the silencing of the individual will and desire. Indeed, we find it impossible to believe in any truly artistic production, however insignificant, if it is without objectivity, without pure contemplation, devoid of, inter- uh, devoid of interest, end quote. So, pure contemplation devoid of interest. That is how Schopenhauer spoke about the rapture from willing, Not a, certainly not an ecstatic rapture, but we might say a sort of Apollinean rapture, maybe, uh, of just this, yeah, uh, the detached, quiet contemplation in which one can uh, just see representations as representations with no willing content and thus become free of the pain of willing. And so this is by bringing that particular um, aspect into it and des- describing the aesthetic experience as the destruction of the ego inherently, um, the silencing of the individual will and desire, Nietzsche is falling right in line with the Schopenhauerian view. And this is where one of the things he would later criticize, and it's also, we could say, not entirely, um, what, how, how can we put it? it's not entirely consistent. It's, it gets a little incoherent because if Apollo is the individuating deity, um, you know, if he gives us, uh, beautiful illusions such as the ego and the individual self, 
And Dionysus is the interruption of that uh, necessary illusion that holds off the primordial pain and contradiction, right? And that the, thus the fall and the collapse, the death of the ego. Then it would seem that uh, the terms that he's speaking of here of disinterested contemplation with the silencing of the individual will and desire kind of contradicts that, right? That he's describing Apollo in two contradictory ways, and it might be because he's being so beholden to Schopenhauer's view of art. Um, but it is worth noting that where he says, he does clarify something that I think is important, that it's not as if Homer is an objective artist confronting the subjective artist of Archilochus, because, and this is where what Nietzsche says uh, further down, I think, clarifies once he kind of breaks out of this Schopenhauerian formulation, we see there is a coherent meaning that he's trying to get across. And, okay, I'll just continue, continue reading, and I think it'll become clear what he means. He says, quote, Our aesthetics must first solve the problem of how the lyrist is possible as an artist. He who, according to the experience of all ages, is continually saying I and running through the entire chromatic scale of his passions and desires. Compared with Homer, Archilochus appalls us by his cries of hatred and scorn, by his drunken outbursts of desire. Therefore is not he who has been called the first subjective artist essentially the non-artist. But in this case, explain the reverence which, is, which was shown to him, the poet, and very remarkable utterances by the Delphic Oracle itself, the center of, quote, objective art, end quote. So, again, he puts subjective in quotes, and even though he's applying objective in quotes to the Delphic god, by implication there, Apollo, and he's saying, well, doesn't Archilochus appear as a subjective artist? He's clearly doing this rhetorically, that he is trying to challenge the idea that we would associate, he's trying to make it so that we do not associate the objective with uh, Apollo and we do not associate the subjective with uh, the Dionysian. I think what we have to keep in mind that might, might clear this up is that the I, quote unquote, that, you know, runs through the entire chromatic scale of the lyrist's passions and desires. Nietzsche is going to go on to clarify how this is the artist identifying himself with the Dionysian primordial pain and contradiction speaking through him. Uh, to put it in more universal terms, the poet identifies himself with the muse. And so, and then likewise, the objective artist, right? If, if we're going to try and call the Apollinian objective, well, Nietzsche has already said that it's illusory, right? And that it's in some sense comes out of the dreams of the, <laughs> of the, uh, naive artist. And so it's very difficult to say that it corresponds to any sort of objective mind, independent external world. Um, in any case, we'll continue. He brings up Schiller, the play, famous uh, playwright, and he says that he's thrown some light on the poetic process by a psychological observation. And then he says that Schiller, before he would, uh, you know, like write a, a, a scene or a, um, you know, any sort of lyrics, he didn't have um, any sort of series of images. What does he say? He did not have before him any series of images in a causal arrangement, but rather a musical mood. 
And then he quotes Schiller, quote, with me, the perception has at first no clear and definite object. This is formed later. A certain musical mood comes first and the poetical idea only follows later. Okay. And so, oh, and then Nietzsche goes on. The rest of the paragraph is just saying that throughout all history, the lyric poet has always been a musician. The idea that, um, poetry, like that the poet and the musician are separate is a modern, um, sort of splitting off and that in uh, past times he says our modern lyric poetry is like a statue without a head compared to the ancient lyric poetry that was always set to music and basically his allegation here is that the music which is um, I mean there's a there's a undertone throughout all of this that music itself um, is a Dionysian force it's an intoxicating force it's an ecstatic force and that those who make music those who conjure tones out of themselves are giving in to this aesthetic self-forgetting um, passion. And so Nietzsche is showing how the poet, um, and this is again, go and read, you know, Ion, go and read Plato's Republic. This is how the Greeks saw it, that the poet is possessed, that it's a form of divine madness and, um, that it, you know this this music of the gods this music of the muses the verses and uh, lyrics of the muses just come out of people without any of their conscious intention and he's saying that schiller is lending credence to this in the modern times or uh, pseudo modern I, I guess he's like uh, i don't know if he's a contemporary with nietzsche's i think he's a little before um that uh you know even in modern times people perceive this that they have a certain mood, a certain feeling, they're moved in a certain way by something within, and then they only kind of construct a conscious narrative around that uh, later. The music comes first, right? Okay. Uh, Next paragraph. um, So he says, quote, as a Dionysian artist, he has identified himself with the primal unity, its pain and contradiction. Assuming that music has been correctly termed a repetition and a recast of the world, we may say that he produces a copy of this primal unity as music, uh, end quote. So um, Nietzsche is blurring the distinctions between subject and, and objective, which I think, it, you know, is, in my opinion, is music, for example, or art objective or subjective? Well, I mean, it's objective in the sense that, um, you know, when they talk about finding authenticity in art, you have to find you're finding quote unquote objective truths about yourself that you're then communicating artistically. Like a feeling um, is not something that you just uh, arbitrarily choose to have. Uh, A very strong emotional state can grip you and therefore confront you as something like an external power almost, right? And that's how the Greeks seem to have experienced a lot of strong emotions or the passions or the affects. And so... Um, in that sense, you're trying to communicate something that you discover within yourself, right? But on the other hand, so it's like very hard to call it like totally subjective, but on the other hand, how do you call that objective either? Um, you know, it's not just a matter of whim or preference or opinion. It's like a, an attempt to, uh, communicate something from the depths of your soul. (laughs) And so is that objective or subjective, right? Um, Okay, continuing on, Nietzsche says that under the Apollinean dream inspiration, this music reveals itself to him again as a symbolic dream image. 
the inchoate intangible reflection of the primordial pain in music with its redemption and mere appearance now produces a second mirroring as a specific symbol or example. The artist has already surrendered his subjectivity in the Dionysian process. The image that now shows him his identity with the heart of the world is a dream scene that embodies the primordial contradiction and primordial pain together with the primordial pleasure of mere appearance. The eye of the lyrist therefore sounds from the death, depth of his being. Its subjectivity in the sense of modern uh, aestheticians is a fiction. Uh, end quote. So there you have it. Uh, again, Nietzsche is better at explaining this than me. If I would just keep reading, he would, uh, I feel like, explain it. But um, more or less what I was trying to get across there, I think he he gets across. And we notice we're building up here that we've... Um, we've got a conception now of we have this identity with the heart of the world. We have this identity with this pri- with this primordial state of nature, of which we're all a part. That is pain, contradiction. It's excess. Nature is always associated with excess with Nietzsche. Um, you know, remember the passage from Beyond Good and Evil where he says a being like nature is wasteful beyond measure, indifferent. It's indifference itself as a power. Um, and so, you know, this, we recognize this identity with primordial nature. We also recognize because primordial nature naturally produces this, the redemption through mere appearance. And, um, but what, you know, the important part in regard to the objectivity subjectivity debate is that calling this the artist's subjectivity to Nietzsche doesn't make much sense. And I uh, agree with him. Um, And so uh, he then describes a couple scenes, uh, you know, associated with Archilochus. Um, What does he say? Uh, As Europe, the drunken reveler Archilochus sunk down in slumber as Euripides depicts it in the Bacchae, the sleep in the high mountain pasture and the noonday sun. And now Apollo approaches and touches him with the laurel. Then the Dionysian musical enchantment of the dream of the sleeper seems to emit image sparks, lyric poems, which in their highest development are called tragedies and dramatic dithyrams. Um, and so it's interesting. He has uh, Di- Apollo approach, uh, spark him with the laurel, and then he uh, is in a Dionysian musical enchantment. So we're seeing this blending of the Apollinian and Dionysian um, in uh, these figures. So, and so in the next paragraph, Nietzsche reiterates uh, this uh, same point um, again, quote, the plastic artist, like the epic poet who is related to him, is in, absorbed in the pure contemplation of images. The Dionysian musician is, without any images, himself pri- pure primordial pain in its primordial re-echoing. End quote. So he's saying there's really no individual ego the I um, in either one of them. Um, now, we might say, if we want to be charitable to Nietzsche and try and harmonize the contradiction for him, maybe that in crafting the I, the individuating power of Apollo um, creates this. Uh, he is the artist that creates this, but he is, uh, he is not himself uh, doing it out of his subjectivity, we'll say, right? Because he receives his... Apollinian power from the dream images of Apollo, and it's a, um, it's that he's using this disinterested, pure contemplation model of Schopenhauer in which no ego is involved. 
I don't quite buy it, but, um, you know, that's the closest we can come to it. So he says, quote, the lyric genius is conscious of a world of images and symbols growing out of his state of mystical self-abnegation and oneness. This world has a coloring, a causality, and a velocity quite different from those of the world of the plastic artist and the epic poet. For the latter lives in these images and only in them with joyous satisfaction. He never grows tired of contemplating lovingly even their minutest traits. Even the image of the angry Achilles is only an image to him whose angry expression he enjoys with the dreamer's pleasure and illusion. Thus, by the mirror of illusion, he is protected against becoming one infused with his figures, end quote. So there we have it, that uh, Nietzsche is holding to this idea of the dreamer as inherently uh, in a state of joyous satisfaction and distance from his creation. And he knows there is a... <laughs> There is a background intuitive knowledge that it is illusion and that he doesn't become absorbed into it by this mirror of illusion. He's protected against becoming fused with the figures. This is the stuff that I'm talking about where you're it really starts to bend your brain and knots uh, of Nietzsche trying to use these Schopenhauerian formulations. And it, it really makes his point mo more opaque than clear, but, um, we can still more or less follow it if we continue to use Schopenhauer as a guide. Um, and he says, quote, in direct contrast to this, the images of the lyrist are nothing but his very self. And as it were only different projections of himself. So he, as the moving center of the world may say, I, of course, his self is not the same as that of the waking empirically real man, but the only truly existent and eternal self resting at the basis of things through whose images the lyric genius sees this very basis basis in in quotes so that's that artist metaphysics that nietzsche is really speaking of the will as an ontological truth as an actual monistic unity and uh that this primordial pain and contradiction he, he calls it elsewhere a unity in spite of the fact that it is a contradictory unity um, we might say that's the contradiction of willing, right? Of ever willing and never being satisfied. And that this constitutes an eternal self that rests at the basis of all things. So again, all things Nietzsche later would come to reject, but we cannot understand the text unless we understand that this is actually what he means here. He's not speaking symbolically. Um, Next paragraph, he says, let us suppose that among these images, he also beholds himself as non-genius, his subject, the whole throng of subjective passions and agitations of the will directed to a def definite object, which appears real to him. It might seem as if the lyric genius and the allied non-genius were one, as if the former had of its own accord spoken that little word, I, but this mere appearance will no longer be able to lead us astray as it certainly led astray those who designated the lyrist as the subjective poet. For, as a matter of fact, Archilochus, the passionately inflamed, loving, and hating man, is but a vision of the genius, who by this time is no longer merely Archilochus, but a world genius expressing his primordial pain symbolically in the symbol of the man Archilochus, while the subjectively willing and desiring man, Archilochus, cannot, can never at any time be a poet, end quote. And so he's saying when... Archilochus is doing his poetry. That is the genius speaking through him. That is the spirit of that eternal self that is then producing an image of the word I. It's producing the image, like Archilochus, when he's inflamed by the ecstatic passions of the Dionysian, is no longer 
the subjective willing man, Archilochus. Um, I, to be clear, perfectly clear about the word subjective, Nietzsche is really tying it to like the subjective will, right? The individual and their individual desires. Maybe I haven't made that clear up to this point, but um, hopefully most people, since they've like, I'm guessing most of you listening to this have probably heard the Schopenhauer episodes. If not, um, they'll be really helpful uh, going forward. So if you want to, in between these releases, go back and listen to the Schopenhauer episodes. But that's where he's defining subjective. And he's basically saying that subjectively willing and desiring man, Archilochus, isn't himself the poet because the poet is the thing that's seized by this genius, by the spirit. That's the thing that's doing the philosophize or the the rhapsodizing, not philosophizing rather. And in doing so, he may produce the image of Archilochus himself, but it's not actually him. Now, so again, very contrived and complicated. Um, there is a sense to it, but only within the Schopenhauerian formulation that Nietzsche is adhering to. Um, okay. Uh, what does he say? We'll just look at the last lines of this paragraph where he says, quote, it is by no means necessary that the lyrist should see nothing but the phenomenon of the man Archilochus before him as a reflection of eternal being. And tragedy shows how far the visionary world of the lyrist may be removed from the phenomenon, which to be sure is closest at hand, end quote. And so what he, to clarify that uh, line, I think it's actually fairly straightforward. He's saying that, um, in fact, uh, the visionary world of the lyrist is often not interested in portraying the individually, subjectively willing man as a dream image. Um, it's not necessary that the lyrist should see nothing but the phenomenon of the man Archilochus as a reflection of the eternal being. That, in fact, the eternal being is more often reflected by the lyric po poet in um, other images Okay, so next paragraph, he says, Schopenhauer, who did not conceal from himself the difficulty the lyrist presents in the philosophical contemplation of art, thought he had uh, found a way out on which, however, I cannot follow him. So it's funny here, Nietzsche is saying, well, I, he, he's presenting this as if he's criticizing Schopenhauer. But what he, he goes on to say is how he's, um, <laughs> that he has, uh, the way that he solves the, the apparent contradiction in Schopenhauer is basically by saying, Schopenhauer didn't understand his own philosophy well enough, and I can like figure out the contradiction for Schopenhauer. So he's still being a Schopenhauerian, right? Um, so Nietzsche says, I believe I have removed the difficulty here in his spirit and to his honor, right? So as a Schopenhauerian, I'm trying to improve Schopenhauer and complete Schopenhauer. So it's not really a criticism of Schopenhauer. Um, so he says, Schopenhauer describes the peculiar nature of song as follows, and this is in World as Will and Representation, part one, page 295. Quote, it is the subject of the will, i.e. his own volition, which fills the consciousness of the singer, often as a released and satisfied desire, joy, but still oftener as an inhibited desire, grief, always as an affect, a passion, a moved state of mind. Besides this, however, and along with it, by the sight of surrounding nature, the singer becomes conscious of himself as the subject of pure willless knowing. His unbroken blissful peace now appears, in contrast to the stress of desire, which is always restricted and always needy. This feeling of contrast, this alternation, is really what the song as a whole expresses and what principally constitutes the lyrical state. End quote. So that's what, what Schopenhauer is saying here, to interpret it in the way Nietzsche understands it and how he's presented it so far. There is a contradiction in 
the phenomenon of song of the lyrist of the singer because they're they're seemingly engaged in an art which plays upon the heartstrings and the emotions it seems to express these um subjective desires and individual you know will um he says you know it's often the consciousness of the singer is uh what is it within their consciousness and driving them is the state of mind of a released and satisfied desire just how schopenhauer classifies joy or happiness is the absence of pain um the relief of pain caused by willing when something is satisfied or an inhibited desire so the grief the pain of a desire being unfulfilled but he also says the singer has a consciousness of himself as the subject of pure willless knowing and that it's the and that's where Schopenhauer sees the rapture from these individual subjective desires that the singer often expresses or seems to be transmitting or possessed by. Um, while at the same time, Schopenhauer views aesthetic contemplation as the rapture from that very desiring. And so there's seemingly a contradiction and the way Schopenhauer seems to deal with it is that in song, the, the whole story of the song, the whole experience of song is this sort of interplay between the expression of desire, either its attainment or its inhibition, contrasted with the rapture from desire and pure willless contemplation. So to go on with Schopenhauer here, quote, um, in the lyrical state, pure knowing comes to us as if it were to deliver us from willing and its strain. We follow, but only for moments, willing the remembrance of our own personal ends tears us anew from peaceful contemplation yet ever again the next beautiful environment in which pure willis knowing presents itself to us lures us away from willing therefore in the song in the lyrical mood willing the personal interest of the ends and pure perception of the environment are wonderfully mingled connections between them are sought and imagined the subjective mood the affection of the will imparts its own hue to this perceived environment and vice versa Genuine song is the expression of this of the whole of this mingled and divided state of mind. End quote. Okay, so that's I think that's actually fairly clear. Actually, with all the things that we've talked about. So then Nietzsche says, "Who could fail to recognize in this description that lyric poetry is here characterized as an incompletely attained art that arrives at its goal infrequently and only as it were by leaps?" So, uh, yeah, if the goal in Schopenhauer's system is to attain uh, freedom from the will to attain that state of pure willless knowing, then if song is simply an interplay and a mingling and the story of song is sort of this back and forth between getting wrapped up in the subject, the individual subjective desires and wills and the redemption from that, then it's only an incomplete art because the point of art is the redemption. So it doesn't quite get there. So Nietzsche continues that it is described as a semi-art whose essence is said to consist in this that willing and pure contemplation, i.e. the unesthetic and the aesthetic condition are wonderfully mingled with each other. So again, that's how Schopenhauer's aesthetics and how he describes aesthetics as freedom from individual willing, freedom from the subjective will. And so since he describes the song as an art whose essence is intermingled with both willing and pure disinterested contemplation, that means he's saying it's the aesthetic mingled with the unesthetic which would make music uh, a sort of uh, botched or incomplete art, as Nietzsche says. So this is a very good uh, criticism. And by the way, Nietzsche seems to hold to Schopenhauer's view of the aesthetic, 
that uh, it does have to do with the negation of the individual subjective will, at least at this point in time. But he says, we contend, on the contrary, that the whole opposition between the subjective and objective, which Schopenhauer still uses as a measure of value in classifying the arts, is altogether irrelevant in aesthetics. Since the subject, the willing individual that furthers his own egotistic ends, can be conceived of only as the antagonist, not the origin of art. Insofar as the subject is the artist, however, he has already been released from his individual will and has become, as it were, the medium through which the one truly existent subject celebrates its release in appearance. For to our humiliation and exaltation, one thing above all must be clear to us. The entire comedy of art is neither performed for our betterment or education, nor are we the true authors of this art world. On the contrary, we may assume that we are merely images and artistic projections for the true author, and that we have our highest dignity and our significance as works of art, for it is only as an aesthetic phenomenon that existence and the world are eternally justified. While, of course, our consciousness of our own significance hardly differs from that which the soldiers painted on the canvas have of the battle represented on it. Um... I'll just keep going. Thus, all our knowledge of art is basically quite illusory because as knowing beings, we are not one and identical with that being which, as the sole author and spectator of this comedy of art, prepares a perpetual entertainment for ourselves. Only insofar as the genius in the act of artistic creation coalesces with this primordial artist of the world, does he know anything of the eternal essence of art. For in this state he is, in a marvelous manner, like the weird image of the fairy tale, which can turn its eyes at will and behold itself, for he is at once subject and object, at once poet, actor, and spectator, end quote. And so Nietzsche is saying the reason why you can't apply the subjective-object distinction to art is that it's impossible to be a subjective artist or an objective artist, that art is where subjective and objective merge and break down, and that the individual subjective will has no part in art ever, and that the subjective artist can only be the enemy of art. And this is art to our humiliation and exaltation because it's humiliating because we are not the true artists. We never can ascribe to ourselves the um, glory or the greatness of having produced these great works of art because, again, to reference the artist metaphysics, we are only being vessels for this genius of the the only true author, the only true subject, which is this eternal self that sits at the bottom in the primordial pain and unity. So quite rightly, Nietzsche is, to Schopenhauer's honor and to his credit, fully embracing the Schopenhauerian uh, view in order to criticize Schopenhauer's uh, description of music as um, that, no, actually a mingling of subjective and objective in the arts is not possible. You cannot mingle the aesthetic and the unesthetic in that way and produce anything more than a simply a botched incomplete uh, aesthetic and that in actuality um, we become at once subject and object poet actor and spectator um, it is not we individually willing beings who are um, you know the true artist um, okay so next uh, section quote in connection with archilocus scholarly research has discovered that he introduced the folk song into literature and on account of this deserved according to the general estimate of the greeks his unique position beside homer but what is the folk song in contrast to the holy apollinian epos um you know the apollinian epic what else but the per perpetuum vestigium 
of a union of the Apollinian and the Dionysian. Its enormous diffusion among all peoples, further reinforced by ever new births, is testimony to the power of this artistic dual impulse of nature, which leaves its vestiges in the folk song just as the orgiastic movements of a people immortalize themselves in its music. Indeed, it might be uh, historically demonstrable that every period rich in folk songs has been most violently stirred by Dionysian currents, which we must always consider the substratum and prerequisite of the folk song. Uh, end quote. And so <laughs> he's saying, uh, he's giving us a origin of the folk song that's very interesting, um, that has a sense to it, given the way that Nietzsche has described the Dionysian as a thing that sort of seizes uh, mankind in mass, that uh, this is an ecstasy that radiates through people and breaks down boundary, boundaries or barriers between them. Um, that was the effect of all of these Dionysian festivals, was to destroy the individuality and bring man into a communion with one another and communion with nature. And thus, um, the idea that it would come from the folk, right? Or that it would, uh, he's basically saying it would, it makes sense that, uh, you know, the, after being seized, as a result of being seized by the Dionysian, a culture's people then acquires a style of music or a form of music. And that's how it uh, radiates through the people, through the folk. And that it might not be entirely obvious um, that you would even have a phenomena like folk music when we consider that the arts um, historically and certainly in the time of ancient Greece were the preserve of the nobility and the aristocrats and the people who had free time, time for leisure. It was a luxury to be able to have an instrument and learn an instrument. So uh, where does folk music come from? Where do these, uh, where does the inclination for um, the great masses of people, the, um, the non-aristocratic music, where does it come from? Does it come from the Dionysian? Is that how, um, you know, we can, because he poses the question, what is the folk song in contrast to the Holy Apollinian epos? Does the Apollinian derive from, um, you know, uh, I mean, I suppose we've already established that the Apollinian we could associate sort of with the um, aristocracy to some extent, um, insofar as it is associated with, you know, the uh, devotion to family and religion, religious worship, and, um, you know, personal excellence and virtue and the drawing of boundary lines of civilization, right? Um, and so the cultures rich in folk songs, Nietzsche hypothesizes that they've been stirred by Dionysian currents. Um, and so he then goes on to say, next paragraph, quote, we must conceive the folk song as the musical mirror of the world as the original melody now seeking for itself a parallel dream phenomenon and expressing it in poetry. Melody is therefore primary and universal and so may admit of several objectifications and several texts. Texts. Uh, excuse me. Likewise, in the na naive estimation of a people, it is regarded as far more important, as the far more important and essential element. Melody generates the poem out of itself ever again. This is what the strophic form of the folk song signifies, a phenomenon which I had always beheld with astonishment until at last I found this explanation. Anyone who, in accordance with this theory, examines a collection of folk songs such as Dis Naben Wunderhorn will find innumerable instances of the way the continuously generating melody scatters spark, uh, image sparks all around, which in their variegation, their abrupt change, their mad precipitation, manifest a power quite unknown to the epic in its steady flow. 
from the standpoint of the epos, this unequal and irregular image of lyric poetry, sorry, image world of lyrical poetry is simply to be condemned. And it certainly has been thus condemned by the solic epic rhapsodists of the Apollinean festivals in the age of Terpander. Uh, end quote. And so, <laughs> I th- again, this is sort of similar to... Uh, it's really the exact same point, actually, that he brought up with uh, Schiller's quotation, where Schiller said that the the musical mood comes first, and then the uh, lyrics and the scene and the images uh, follow afterwards. Um, melody is primary and universal, and so th- that is uh, a Dionysian explanation of music and where it comes from. That melodies simply well up from within inside the being. Uh, or from within inside the depths of our being, um, as if authored by some sort of God or muse in Nietzsche's estimation at this time of the one true subject, the eternal willing self, the primordial pain and contradiction speaks through us and melody comes out. And he says in collections of folk songs, he's looked at this continuously generating melody. So, you know, the folk song, it's improvisational, it's spontaneous. It's often sort of like a sung uh, melody that ha- will have many, many verses, often like a repeating vamp. Um, but then you'll have like little variations and each, you know, verse will, he says there's various sparks of images that spin off. And th- this is very true. I think, uh, speaking as a musician that you can sometimes hum a melody. Um, I, and I titled a song that way recently in an album I was working on where I had some chords and then I was like, um, playing out a little melody just on the guitar for what the vocal melody would be. And I was like humming it out. And then a phrase of lyrics came to me and that became the name of the song that was just based on the pacing of sort of the melody as it naturally arose. And then the words came to fit that musical phrase. So the words were secondary to the melody and then that shaped the entire direction of the song. So when you look at music that way in our actual experience, it, it, it isn't too hard to see where Nietzsche and the Greeks are coming from and calling it basically spirit possession, that music wrote the lyrics to that song, right, um, from within me. And so uh, that's what Nietzsche is saying about the uh, traditions of folk music, that they come from uh, the Dionysian. Continuing in the next paragraph, Nietzsche says, quote, We observe that in the poetry of the folk song, language is strained to its utmost that it may imitate music. And with Archilochus begins a new world of poetry, basically opposed to the Homeric. And in saying this, we have indicated the only possible relation between poetry and music, between word and tone. The word, the image, the concept here seeks an expression analogous to music and now feels in itself the power of music, end quote. Okay, so this is actually very, very important. Because this is what he just said there in that sentence is what he meant symbolically when he said that Apollo is taking the weapons of his enemy Dionysus. So the Homeric, the naive uh, Apollinian artist, that is in complete opposition to the Dionysian, um, you know, the poetry and the folk song in which Nietzsche's evidence, again, his form of further evidence for his claim is that language is strained to its utmost and constrained and forced to fit into the contours, the shape set by music. So that's how we can see that language is following music. And so he's saying this is the only possible relation between poetry and music is that 
the word and thus the concept, because that is language denotes concepts, and we can't even, um, there's no conceivable or coherent way of talking about concepts without language. They are linked together. Um, that basically concepts, these word concepts, wish to ride on the wave of the power of music in order to attain the power of music and imbue their concepts, imbue the content, the intellectual content, the structure, the narrative, all of these Apollinean things, seizing the power of the Dionysian, gaining that ecstatic rapture power to transmit, um, to be able to stir the heart um, on the wings of a concept. And so um, even though these two poetic or creative forms of Homer and Archilochus stand in opposition to one another, we see again the sublation and how they not only mutually enhance one another through their opposition, but begin to merge these continual uh, births through their contact by taking the form of the other. Um, Okay, and then so next Nietzsche says, quote, in this sense we may discriminate between two main currents in the history of language of the Greek people according to whether their language imitated the world of image and phenomenon or the world of music. One need only reflect more deeply on the linguistic difference with regard to color, syntactical structure, and vocabulary in Homer and Pindar in order to understand the significance of this contrast. And indeed, it becomes palpably clear that in the period between Homer and Pindar, the orgiastic flute tones of Olympus must have been sounded, which even in Aristotle's time, when music was infinitely more developed, transported people to drunken ecstasy and which, in their primitive state of development, undoubtedly incited to imitation all the poetic means of expression of contemporaneous man, end quote. Um, so, uh, basically saying between the ancient times and the time of Pindar and even Aristotle's time, we can see how language has been influenced by music in the Greek, ancient Greek language. I do not uh, know enough or really anything about the ancient Greek language and its development to comment on this. I will say that when my wife went to St. John's, they uh, had some guest speakers who read some passages in ancient Greek, and there's a debate about uh, which way it is um, supposed to be pronounced, and that there's one school of thought that thinks ancient Greek should be very sing-songy, and another that thinks it should be very flat, and they both, they had two speakers from these two different schools of thought to read some ancient Greek. And she said the sing-songy Greek sounded quite absurd to a, to a funny degree. Actually, it was actually quite humorous. Um, so I don't know. This is sort of what that makes me think of that. Maybe, uh, there was a time where ancient Greek was more musical. Okay. Um, but this is just sort of a side point. The, the main meat of that paragraph was in the sort of the beginning of it. Um, okay. In the next paragraph, uh, he talks about uh, Beethoven, and it, I'm going to kind of gloss over this paragraph a little bit because it's basically just a recapitulation of what we've been talking about, that he's sort of saying, um, you know, we can see this tendency even in our own times that uh, he says a Beethoven symphony compels its individual auditors to use figurative speech in describing it, no matter how fantastically variegated and even comp contradictory may be the composition and makeup of the different worlds of images produced by a piece of music. Right? So 
music flowing out of the Dionysian is excessive. It's contradictory. It produces a world of images that uh, don't make sense in any rigorous Apollonian way. And uh, yet we see this tendency in ourselves since time immemorial to try and take uh, music and um, author that Apollonian story with word concepts onto the top of it. And that, uh, you know, basically those who will, uh, you know, that will describe a, a Beethoven symphony in terms, Nietzsche says, you know, even when the tone poet expresses his composition in images, for instance, when he designates a certain symphony as the pastoral symphony or a passage in it as a scene by a brook or another as the merry gathering of rustics, these uh, two are only symbolical representations born of music and not the imitated objects of music. Representations which can teach us nothing whatsoever concerning the Dionysian content of music and which indeed have no distinctive value of their own beside other images. Um, and so oh, and he ends the paragraph by saying, we have now to transfer this process of a discharge of music and images to some fresh, youthful, linguistically creative people in order to get some notion of the way in which the strophic folk song originates and the whole linguistic capacity is excited by this new principle of the imitation of music. So the, the linguistic capacity in man is excited by the principle of the imitation of music. Uh, we can see how we even want to affix words and images to musical con content today even though these images actually can teach us nothing about the Dionysian content because the images are following after and trying to imitate the power of music and not the other way around. Music is not actually trying to, this is, I guess, the central claim of this paragraph. Music is itself not trying to produce the image of the pastoral scene. The pastoral scene is something which uh, we take the power of music in order to convey for whatever reason. Okay, um, next paragraph. Um, if therefore we may regard lyric poetry as the imitative fulguration of music and images and concepts, we should now ask, as what does music appear in the mirror of images and concepts? It appears as will, taking the term in Schopenhauer's sense, i.e. as the opposite of the aesthetic, purely contemplative and passive frame of mind. Um, so Nietzsche saying music is pure will. And so he... Again, he combated Schopenhauer on this point in the last uh, section by saying, well, no, like the, the individual subjective will does not uh, actually appear at any point in the aesthetic process. And that can only be the enemy. It can only be the enemy of art to uh, try and do art from your the position of your own subjective desires and wills. But here, where he says it appears as will, taking the term in Schopenhauer's sense as the opposite of the aesthetic, purely contemplative and passive frame of mind, well, he is saying um, music is, is appearing as the opposite of the aesthetic, as something unesthetic. Um, and get ready for another tie your brain and knots type of passage, because Nietzsche says to follow this quote, here, however, we must make as sharp a distinction as possible between the concepts of essence and phenomenon, for music, according to its essence, cannot possibly be will. To be will, it would have to be wholly banished from the realm of art, for the will is the unesthetic in itself, but it appears as will. For in order to express its appearance in images, the lyrist needs all the agitations of passion, from the whisper of mere inclination to the roars of madness. Impelled to speak 
of music and Apollinean symbols, he conceives of all nature and himself in it as willing, as desiring, as eternal longing. But insofar as he interprets music by means of images, he himself rests in the calm sea of Apollinean contemplation, though everything around him that he beholds through the medium of music is in urgent and active motion. Indeed, when he beholds himself through the same medium, his own image appears to him as an unsatisfied feeling. His own willing, longing, moaning, rejoicing are to him symbols by which he interprets music. This is the phenomenon of the lyrist. As Apollinean genius, he interprets music through the image of the will, while he himself, completely released from the greed of the will, is the pure, undimmed eye of the sun. End quote. Okay, so the essence is will, but music, according to its essence, cannot possibly be will. It appears as a phenomenon uh, in, so phenomenon, mere appearance, essence, ontology, true world, right? Um, as music appears to us, what we generate out of the Dionysian impulses, um, we perceive it as will. And he says, and I don't think this is a very strong argument. He just says that uh, the lyrist needs the agitations of passion from the whisper of inc mere inclination to the roar of madness in order to express its appearance in images. Um, so music itself is not the will. Music itself is aesthetic, and it's the destruction of the individual will, right? Because it's Dionysian. Uh, but in order to then render this um, Dionysian experience in images, we end up uh, having to stir ourselves uh, up emotionally, and then this is what causes us to then perceive music as a phenomenon as it appears to us as will. Uh, again, I would personally criticize this probably as much as Nietzsche would when we get into this uh, section where it, I find this Byzantine, frankly, um, where it's really contorting in order to put things into the Schopenhauerian formula. But... Um, you know, again, Nietzsche kind of comes to something that's at least remotely comprehensible at the end, that the phenomenon of the lyrist is the Apollinean genius who interprets music through the image of the will. Um, but he himself, insofar as he is an actual artist standing in pure willless contemplation, he is released from the greed of the will. Um, and so he is able to you know, it's like Nietzsche is basically trying to reframe music as the will creating an image of itself in order to stand apart from it and therefore be liberated from it and behold the will in its most primal form, which of course we cannot do, right? Because it's ontological and in any image or form that you give to the will is not actually what the will is. It's just a representation. But uh, the best that we can come to it is through the what would you call it the image creating process born on the power of music by this we can produce an image of the will and thus nevertheless be released from the will holding it at a distance from us um behind the veil of maya and and you know we couldn't call to mind the the image he used earlier of even the angry gaze of achilles we can sort of uh, stand between between it, uh, stand with the veil of illusion between this terrifying image and, and ourselves and say, it is a dream I will dream on. Um, at this, you know, uh, at points like this, I, I think Nietzsche has kind of gotten away 
you know, there are some points where he really speaks to, I think, the actual subjective reality of being an artist. I just use that word subjective, but you know what I mean? In the subjective experience, the experiential knowledge of being an artist that I have and can relate to. And then in passages like this, it seems that he ha- he is overthinking it. Um, but anyway, we'll keep going. Um, and so he says, quote, our whole discussion insists that lyric poetry is dependent on the spirit of music just as music itself in its absolute sovereignty does not need the image in the concept, but merely endures them as accompaniments. So again, the music is primary, melody is primary, the mood, the Dionysian outflow, the ecstasis, that's primary, and then images and concepts, word concepts, uh, image concepts are born on it in order to steal the weapons of Dionysus for the Apollinean, but the music doesn't need them. Um... And so then he says, the poems of the lyrist can express nothing that did not already lie hidden in that vast universality and absoluteness in the music that compelled him to figurative speech. Language can never adequately render the cosmic symbolism of music because music stands in symbolic relation to the primordial contradiction and primordial pain in the heart of the primal unity and therefore symbolizes a sphere which is beyond and prior to all phenomena. So that's sort of what we were speaking of earlier, the will itself, the ontological reality, according to Schopenhauer, which Nietzsche uses primordial contradiction and primordial pain in the heart of the primal unity of the eternal self, as he's called it, the suffering artist's God at the heart of reality. Um, You can't actually represent that in any way, in any phenomena, naturally, just by the fact that it is represented no longer is that noumenon. And so... He says, quote, all phenomena compared with it are merely symbols. Hence, language as the organ and symbol of phenomena can never by any means disclose the innermost heart of music. Language and its attempt to imitate it can only be in superficial contact with music. While all the eloquence of lyric poetry cannot bring the deepest significance of the latter one step nearer to us. So I think in some of this, just to to recap, Nietzsche is trying to have his cake and eat it too. Um, in that he wants, he wants music to actually represent, to be the closest, to be the thing in our direct experience, the impetus for music, the thing that speaks out of the depths of your being that compels you to music. He wants that to be our way of communing with the primordial pain and contradiction and breaking down the subject-object distinction, right? Which would make music, for all intents and purposes, the actual experience with the phenomena of the will. But because he's still wrapped up in this Schopenhauerian formulation that the aesthetic is the opposite of the individual <laughs> will, music can't be the will. It can only be our phenomenal representation of the will. And I don't think, I don't know. I think this is all we'll all say on the matter actually. And we'll just move on because, um, he's this, there are a lot of contradictions in Nietzsche's thought so far, and it's not a lot of the, once he gets into the subjective objective stuff where he's sort of wrestling with issues that he's getting from Kant and Schopenhauer, he goes a little off the track from actually uh, demonstrating how tragedy arose from these, this artistic interplay. And he's like a little bit more concerned with navigating this labyrinth of um, like, how to talk about certain things in art and subjectivity and objectivity. So we'll move on. So part seven, 
quote, we must now avail ourselves of all the principles of art considered so far in order to find our way through the labyrinth. (laughs) It's funny. I just use that as we must call it of the origin of Greek tragedy end quote. So, you know, we're getting, we're getting to the point here in part seven quote. I do not think I am unreasonable in saying that the problem of this origin has as yet not even been seriously posed to say nothing of solved. Um, we'll skip down a little bit. Um, he says, this tradition tells us quite unequivocally that tragedy arose from the tragic chorus and originally was only chorus and nothing but chorus. Hence, we consider it our duty to look into the heart of this tragic chorus as the real proto-drama without resting satisfied with such arty cliches as that the chorus is the ideal spectator or that it represents the people in contrast to the aristocratic region of the scene. Um, so we'll skip through this a little bit more. He says, you know... Um, there have been some contemporary commenters who have suggested that the tragic chorus, the chorus of voices of singers that accompanied the um, dramatic tragedy, the performance of the uh, you know tragic play, and would even interact and call and respond with the characters in the play. Uh, there's one theory that the chorus arose as a sort of ideal spectator, that it was the Greeks' idea of what the... Um, you know, that they wrote the spectator into the drama, and that is the crowd, the audience, is this chorus, um, the tragic chorus. Um, the other theory is that they represent the people in contrast to the aristic, aristocratic region of the scene. So the characters that we're seeing in, in the scene, the actual characters playing out the drama, are always aristocrats and nobles, and so maybe the tragic chorus represents the people beholding this drama among the nobles. But um, Nietzsche says no, because the chorus originally was um, the only thing on the stage. The chorus was the origin of tragedy and the dramatic performance of the um, scenes by actors came later in the history of tragedy. And so, um, he basically says uh, to skip through a little bit that, you know, it may have seemed uh, it may seem to suit our taste and our modern political ideas. Um, it has a sublime sound to many a politician, uh, quote, as if the immutable moral law had been embodied by the Democratic Athenians in the popular chorus. But um, that's just simply not historical. Um he says, even regarding the classical form of the chorus in Aeschylus and Sophocles, which is known to us, we should deem it blasphemy to speak here of intimations of a constitutional popular representation. From this blasphemy, however, others have not shrunk. Ancient constitutions knew of no constitutional representation of the people in praxi, and it is to be hoped that they did not even have in- intimations of it in tragedy. End quote. So, they knew nothing of representation of the people politically. And he's saying, let, let us hope that they don't even, they wouldn't even have uh, imitations of popular representation by symbolically representing the people in the form of a chorus and tragedy. Um, you know, the more important point or the more important historical point of Nietzsche's here is simply that the chorus arose first. He's correct that ancient Greece was not democratic in the way that people sometimes try and pass it off to be. Um, but the real smoking gun is just the fact that the chorus was first. And he kind of, uh, um, he, he, he goes after A.W. Schlegel. He was a um, German romantic 
and he um, he says that quote the chorus is somehow the essence and extract of the crowd of spectators the ideal spectator so he's the one who puts forward the ideal spectator view and Nietzsche says quote this view when compared with the historical tradition that originally tragedy was only chorus reveals itself for what it is a crude unscientific yet brilliant claim that owes its brilliancy only to its concentrated form of expression, to the typically Germanic bias in favor of anything called ideal. Uh, end quote. So, shot there at uh, German philosophy, German thought, German idealism. Um, but simply put, the historical fact that the chorus came first kind of makes nonsense of the idea that the chorus could be the ideal spectator because what are they there to spectate if originally they were the totality of the play? Um, and so further down, he says, uh, quote, we had always believed that the right spectator, whoever he might be, must always remain conscious that he was viewing a work of art and not an empirical reality. But the tragic course of the Greeks is forced to recognize real beings in the figures on stage. The chorus of the Oceanides really believes that it sees before it the Titan Prometheus, and it considers itself as real as the god of the scene. But could the highest and purest type of spectator regard Prometheus as bodily present and real as the Oceanides do? Is it characteristic of the ideal spectator to run onto the stage and free the god from his torments? End quote. So, yeah, if, if in what sense are they? is the chorus an ideal spectator? When the chorus does things, when the chorus interacts with the play, we wouldn't say that the ideal spectator, the, the, the exemplary, the role model audience member goes and disrupts the play by deciding to intervene to save the main character or something, right? You know, if you're going to see Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, would, uh, would anyone who's a, a theater director say that their idea of a model audience goer would be the guy who, out of such a love for Caesar, seeing that he's about to get stabbed, runs on stage and fights off the other actors trying to stab Caesar the actor, right? And that's what Nietzsche is saying here. So, like, how can we say that the, the course is the ideal spectator? Because a spectator should know that he's watching a spectacle, and the chorus doesn't know that. Um, we would regard someone who didn't know that would be, you know, uh, quite insane. And so he says, quote, uh, Oh, these Greeks, we sigh, they upset all our aesthetics. But once accustomed to this, we repeated Schlegel's saying whenever the chorus came up for discussion. Now the tradition, which is quite explicit, speaks against Schlegel, the chorus as such, without the stage, the primitive form of tragedy, and the chorus of ideal spectators do not go together. Uh, what kind of artistic genre could possibly be extracted from the concept of the spectator and find its true form in the spectator as such? The spectator without the spectacle is an absurd notion. So I, in my own commentary, uh, I said what Nietzsche goes on to say <laughs> later in the text. But he says, We fear that the birth of tragedy is to be explained neither by any high esteem for the moral intelligence of the masses, nor by the concept of spectator without a spectacle. And we consider the problem too deep to even be touched by such superficial considerations. Um, and so, yeah, mostly just re recapping all of that. Uh, next paragraph, he says, an infinitely more valuable insight into the significance of the chorus was displayed by Schiller and the celebrated preface to his Bride of Messina, where he regards the chorus as a living wall 
that tragedy constructs around itself in order to close itself off from the world of reality and to preserve its ideal domain and poetical freedom. With this, his chief weapon, Schiller combats the ordinary conception of the natural, the illusion usually demanded in dramatic poetry. Although the stage day is merely artificial, the architecture only symbolical, and the metrical language ideal in character, nevertheless, an erroneous view still prevails in the main, as he points out. It is not sufficient that one merely tolerates as poetic license what is actually the essence of all poetry. The introduction of the chorus, says Schiller, is the decisive step by which war is declared openly and honorably against all naturalism in art, end quote. And so Schiller's view that Nietzsche says is a valuable insight is that the chorus is a living wall that tragedy constructs around itself. And so this is a Apollinean magic circle, a boundary drawn around tragedy. The chorus is a, um, you know, it begins as the um, outflowing of the Dionysian impulse in music itself. But in later eras, um, it, it is a force that severs off the audience it's, from becoming absorbed in the reality of the tragedy before, before him. That even though by every indication what he's seeing is not real. Um, it's interesting. He says, it, the chorus is the decisive step by which war is declared openly and honorably against all naturalism and art. That the chorus is actually the thing that makes it impossible. It's, it's like the opposite of the ideal spectator, in fact. Because the chorus is part of the performance and it's the most unrealistic part. It's the part that makes us unable to suspend our disbelief right like when uh um when the chorus goes in to rescue prometheus um how could that be something that we could suspend our disbelief for of viewing the uh the the choir of voices who are in some sense narrating the action from intervening in the action itself uh, that's like one of the most, under, I mean, it's like a meta fictive. It's completely breaks the fourth wall. And um, I'm going to actually skip through a paragraph here where Nietzsche is just sort of uh, criticizing the pseudo idealism of uh, Goethe and Schiller. But um, he clarifies a little bit more in the paragraph uh, that, that follows. Nietzsche says, quote, it is indeed an ideal domain as Schiller correctly perceived in which the Greek satyr chorus, the chorus of primitive tragedy, was wont to dwell. It is a domain raised high above the actual paths of mortals. For this chorus, the Greek built up the scaffolding of a fictitious natural state and on it placed fictitious natural beings. On this foundation, tragedy developed, and so, of course, it could dispense from the beginning with a painstaking portrayal of reality. End quote. And so, what I, I guess I'm trying to get at here that Nietzsche is bringing up, it's declares war on naturalism, what he means is it's declaring war on what we would call in modern day realism. It's establishing something which in no way corresponds or attempts to have a painstaking portrayal of reality, as he says. That it is a avowedly and proudly um, a portrayal of mere appearance, of illusion. And that this in the same way that the 
Olympian middle world of art place is placed between man and the Dionysian reality, right? The awful truth at the uh, heart of reality. Similarly, we have this fictitious, um, these fictitious natural beings of the Seder chorus that is sort of placed between man and this depiction of tragedy, which is a glimpse of the Dionysian horror, horrifying wisdom of Salinas rendered on the stage. And so the, the chorus is this middle world between man and uh, the actual hor- horrible truth of life, right? Um, now, of course, the entire thing, the entire production is actually itself all appearances um, in the same way that will can't actually be rendered into a phenomena or else it wouldn't be will. Uh, we can't say that the actual tragic performance is actually a depiction of the primordial pain of contradiction, right? That it's actually a protection of the noumenon. It is itself an appearance. It's all appearance. But um, that, that even the imagery of the middle world of art standing between man, the actual spectator, and the um, awful wisdom of Salinas being portrayed on stage, that itself is symbolic re- symbolically rendered in the form of the chorus. Um, okay, so, quote, it is no arbitrary world placed by whim between heaven and earth. Rather, it is a world with the same reality and credibility that Olympus with its inhabitants possessed for the believing Helene. So we have the correlation there. The Olympian middle world of art. Um, Nietzsche continues, quote, the Seder as the Dionysian chorus lives in a religiously acknowledged reality under the sanction of myth and cult. That tragedy should begin with him. That he should be the voice of the Dionysian wisdom of tragedy is just as strange a phenomenon for us as the general derivation of tragedy from chorus, end quote. And so we return to one of the questions Nietzsche asked in the preface um, as to what that the satyr, the cross of God and Billy Goat, um, how he stood in relationship to dramatic tragedy. And um, Nietzsche basically, I'll just go on to the next paragraph where he gives a good explanation of it. Quote, Perhaps we shall have a point of departure for our inquiry if I put forward the proposition that the satyr, the fictitious natural being, bears the same relation to the man of culture that Dionysian music bears to civilization. Concerning the latter, Richard Wagner says, it is nullified by music just as lamplight is nullified by the light of day. Um, Okay, uh, end quote. So (laughs) civilization is nullified by music just as lamplight is nullified by the light of day. So we can see how Wagnerianism greatly affects this book and the way Nietzsche talks about the Dionysian music overwhelming civilizations and cultures. Um, this is a natural upwelling of ecstasy and the destruction of boundaries so powerful that it is like the light of the sun nullifying lamplight and making it basically invisible, um, rendering it irrelevant. And so the satyr stands in that same relation to the Greek person of culture, the ancient Greek, uh, you know, the man of the ancient Greek culture. What does he mean by that? Well, Nietzsche says, quote, similarly, I believe the Greek man of culture felt himself nullified in the presence of the satiric chorus. This is the most immediate fact of the effect of the Dionysian tragedy, that the state and society and quite generally the gulfs between man and man give way to an overwhelming feeling of unity leading back to the heart of nature. Uh, Nietzsche is just sort of reiterating himself again here, recapitulating, but it is helpful to kind of 
string us along, especially after taking us through the mazes of his thought with subjectivity and objectivity and um, trying to square the, like, <laughs> enrapturement with desires inherent to music with the aesthetic as inherently non-subjective. But in any case, he says, the metaphysical comfort with which I am suggesting even now, even true tragedy leaves us, that life is at the bottom of things, despite all changes of appearances, indestructibly powerful and pleasurable. This comfort appears in incarnate clarity in the chorus of satyrs, a chorus of natural beings who live ineradicably, as it were, behind all civilization and remain eternally the same despite the changes of generations and of the history of nations, end quote. And so it's not, it's interesting uh, that, yeah, that I think that's a great um, way of putting it, that the satyr, um, it's not necessarily like hearkening back to a longing for a romantic, more idyllic, simpler time. The satyr is sort of timeless. They're untimely. They're behind all nations and cultures. They're representative of the eternal um, force or pattern or law of nature that uh, simply takes no heed of the rise and fall of empires and who live eternally and indestructibly. And um, he says they're, despite all changes of appearances, indestructibly powerful and pleasurable. And so this is the redemption of the world through art yet again, that uh, the depiction of life as this eternally powerful and pleasurable thing in spite of all of the, um, you know, the rise and fall of empires and the downfall of great men and the destruction of the beautiful that is portrayed on the stage. Um, and so, right, in the next paragraph, Nietzsche says, with this chorus, the profound Helene, uniquely susceptible to the tenderest and deepest suffering, comforts himself, having looked boldly right into the terrible destructiveness of so-called world history, as well as the cruelty of nature, and being in danger of longing for a Buddhistic negation of the will. Art saves him, and through art, life. End quote. So it's very interesting because he calls him a Dionysian uh, chorus, chorist. That's who the satyr is. Um, it's very Dionysian. But notice, it's what the chorus does, the satyr chorus, is reverse the wisdom of Salinas, as Nietzsche talked about as the goal of art, or of Greek art in the past uh, readings we did of parts one through three, reversing the wisdom of Salinas. So this is a Dionysian um, force, which is nevertheless um, showing us life as pleasurable and enduring. And so again, it's another sublation. It's a carrying of an Apollinean message through Dionysian form. And this unification in tragedy of the Apollinean and the Dionysian, that is the redemption of the primordial pain and contradiction through aesthetics, through art. And what Nietzsche, this is the really key point, is saying is that the Greek the man of the Greek culture went and beheld tragedy and had this experience and art saves him and through art life. And what it means is this is the Dionysian harness now in such a way within this magic circle of the Apollinian contained in such a way, shaped in such a way, this interplay of these forces such that 
The Dionysian doesn't simply overwhelm and nullify people in the sense of the rituals of Sakea or the way that it overthrew the Etruscans, as Nietzsche said, or in the St. Vitus dance where people just chaotically dance until they die. This is a harnessing of the Dionysian and the Apollinian together in order to basically affect that redemption that Nietzsche is talking about. Um, and so it's, it's through that nullification and passing through it on the other side that um, art redeems the individual. And so it, in rejecting the Buddhistic negation of the will, Nietzsche is, uh, as Kaufman points out in a footnote, that here Nietzsche's emancipation from Schopenhauer becomes uh, evident. Um, and so Nietzsche writes, uh, you know, a quote from Kaufman here, Nietzsche writes about tragedy as the great life-affirming alternative to Schopenhauer's negation of the will. One can still be as honest and free of optimistic illusions as Schopenhauer was and still celebrate life as fundamentally powerful and pleasurable as the Greeks did, end quote. Um, and that's accurate what, what Kaufman says, but it really doesn't get at the profound heart that Nietzsche of the matter that Nietzsche's been building up to, that it's basically through the portrayal of the Dionysian in this imagistic form, in this form that is bounded by the Apollinian, and then the experience with that that allows the individual to sort of nullify himself and then pass through that nullification on the other side as a form of redemption that is an inducement to life, that the Dionysian um, is harnessed that rather than pointing man towards dissolution, um, actually entices him to life. Uh, Nietzsche says in the next paragraph, quote, for the rapture of the Dionysian state with its annihilation of the ordinary bounds and limits of existence contains, while it lasts, a lethargic element in which all personal experiences of the past become immersed. This chasm of oblivion separates the worlds of ever everyday reality and of Dionysian reality. But as soon as this everyday reality re-enters consciousness, it is experienced as such with nausea and aesthetic uh, ascetic, excuse me, will-negating mood is the fruit of these states, end quote. And so he's sort of reiterating again that <laughs> the Dionysian, the everyday reality that we live in, which is um, in the time of the Greeks, cordoned off by the veil of Maya established by Apollo, and the Dionysian reality that is the, the primordial pain and contradiction outside of the bounds of our illusions, um, the, there's this chasm that separates them, but uh, once we pass through it and re-enter re consciousness, we have this uh, nausea. Um, this, you know, existential vertigo, uh, which leads us towards that ascetic, will-negating mood. Um, and so Nietzsche says, quote, In this sense, the Dionysian man resembles Hamlet. Both have once looked into the true essence of things. They have gained knowledge, and nausea inhibits action, for their action could not change anything in the internal nature of things. They feel it to be ridiculous or humiliating that they should be asked to set right a world that is out of joint. Knowledge kills action. Action requires the veils of illusion. That is the doctrine of Hamlet, not that cheap wisdom of Jack the Dreamer, who reflects too much and, as it were, from an excess of possibilities does not get around to action. Not reflection, no, true knowledge, an insight into the horrible truth outweighs any motive for action, both in Hamlet and in the Dionysian man.
end quote. So this is the famous, you know, you can look at Hamlet as a play about hesitation and about not knowing when to act or how to act, knowing that you should set things to right, but uh, being unable to bring yourself to carry it out. And that's how Hamlet is often interpreted. But Nietzsche, I think you could say, is zeroing in on the to be and not to be, or or to be or not to be, right? That is the question that... Um, Hamlet is actually portrayed as a character with like a, in Nietzschean terms, who has glimpsed the Dionysian, the primordial pain and contradiction, the um, tragic nature of all life, the fleetingness of human form, the idea, uh, you know, the wisdom of Salinas, so to speak. And in light of that, it's not simply that he, you know, has analysis paralysis and can't act. It's that, uh, he has glimpsed true knowledge and this has uh, destroyed the veils of illusion which were a prerequisite for action. Now this single paragraph, Nietzsche would, um, I mean, for one, we see Nietzsche elaborate on this theme throughout the untimely meditations that would follow this text and in Human All Too Human. So for example, in the untimely meditations and use and abuse of history for life, the entire essay is about how, um, you know, Knowledge that doesn't, he begins by quoting Goethe, saying that knowledge that doesn't quicken my activity, knowledge that doesn't facilitate my ability to act in the world, knowledge that I cannot integrate into a a plan of action for affecting the world and engaging with the world, does not interest me. It's actually knowledge um, that doesn't quicken activity can actually inhibit it. And Nietzsche, in that essay, writes about how it is the unhistorical, unself-reflective, unknowledgeable nature of, say, animals that allow them to just act on blind instinct without thinking about it. And that all action, when it comes right down to it, requires that you eventually just make a decision. That you can, in, in principle, there is no end to the amount of deliberating or reflecting you could do on any decision. But at the end of the day, you have to come down on one side or the other. And that requires that you suspend this deliberative process and simply act. And so that, that is a very pragmatic way of looking at how knowledge kills action. But given everything we've said about the Apollonian power of illusion, it actually goes well beyond that because we can say that all of the religious boundaries, all of the, um, you know, the moral uh, dictates that man sets up, all of the individuating barriers between self and other and between classes of people and all of the orders of rank of ancient society, all of the, um, you know, designation of the different sacred areas for different gods and the domains of different gods and um, all of these things in ancient Greek society, these were the illusions out of which they constructed this whole, you know, their whole metaphysics, their whole morality, their whole meaning of life is is created out of this illusory dreamlike power. That's, in Nietzsche's estimation, what happened. In some sense, this idea that destroying this illusion, this enchantment of the world, um, collapses our ability to begin to act in the world that we should be asked to set right a world that is fundamentally out of joint, right? Uh, Seems to just be completely absurd and humiliating to us. This carries through all the way to Nietzsche's ideas of the death of God, 
And it certainly applies to his um, ideas of Socrates and how Socratism um, attacked and destroyed the beautiful illusions of Greek society. And that's something that we're, we'll get into that criticism of Socrates, which is in this very book, but we're not quite there yet. Um, so we'll continue, quote, Now no comfort avails anymore. Longing transcends a world after death. Even the gods, existence is negated along with its glittering reflection in the gods or in an immortal beyond. Conscious of the truth he has once seen, man now sees everywhere only the horror or absurdity of existence. Now he understands what is symbolic in Ophelia's fate. Now he understands the wisdom of the sylvan god Salinas. He is nauseated. Here, when the danger to his will is greatest, art approaches as a saving sorceress expert at healing. She alone knows how to turn these nauseous thoughts about the horror or absurdity of existence into notions with which one can live. These are the sublime as the artistic taming of the horrible, and the comic as the artistic discharge of the nausea of absurdity. The satyr chorus of the dithyram is the saving deed of Greek art. Faced with the intermediary world of these Dionysian companions, the feelings described here exhausted themselves. Um, end quote. So, um, in other words, this is a term that we haven't quite seen used yet but um art it's another it's why i've described the dionysian as a safety valve on greek society because it allows those feelings to be discharged or exhausted through their personification through their expression through the ability to engage with that dionysian experience to experience the nullification of the self the ego death of the dionysian um but with uh, the middle world of art, with the dramatic chorus sort of protecting you, and with the Dionysian uh, properly contained and directed in a certain way. And um, so, again, uh, it's sublation on top of sublation on top of sublation. And I, I feel that in, within these first seven sections, it's not as if he's necessarily telling a chronological story as to how the Apollinian and Dionysian historically and chronologically strengthen and enhance one another. It's more like a series of vignettes of like here or aspects that he's bringing out. Like here is one way in which the Apollinian now rides on the wave of the Dionysian and that the word concept and the image can be carried on tone and melody. Or here's how the Dionysian can find its discharge while, um, you know, without, it can find its discharge in some sort of regularity and exhaust all of these feelings, but uh, by doing it within the bounds of the chorus, it's harnessed the ability of the middle world of art that sort of allows man to hold it at a distance to um, personify or phenomenalize the ontological reality of this primordial pain and contradiction and have an encounter with it without being destroyed um, and having you know, being, uh, laid again, laid low again as, uh, tigers and apes or, you know, um, becoming ascetics and having our will completely Buddhistically negated. Um, Nietzsche, by the end of this little section that we've been reading, finally liberates himself from Schopenhauer, or at least displays that liberation in his words, um, and is no longer criticizing Schopenhauer in such a way as to 
properly honor and set his work right and improve upon him, but actually really breaking from Schopenhauer insofar as he sees art as an inducement to life. Now, it's still within the formulation that it allows us to... um, You could still... If you wanted to like harmonize Schopenhauer and Nietzsche here, you could sort of say, look, Schopenhauer is saying that we are redeemed through, uh, you know, um, disinterested, pure, willless contemplation, becoming a willless subject of knowing, because that's when we are not being gripped by the will. And uh, Nietzsche is actually saying the same thing. He's just saying that periodic experience with this through art allows life to continue to be bearable. Whereas Schopenhauer would say, this allows us to increasingly detach from life, right? So Nietzsche would be kind of a catharsis or kind of a a purging and exhausting, a discharging. Whereas Schopenhauer, uh, you know, and so that we can go on living, whereas Schopenhauer would say, it's like the opposite of that. It's like every encounter we have with the sublime, with the aesthetic, pure, disinterested contemplation brings us closer to abandoning the will forever. Um, but the important thing um, to me is seeing Nietzsche's inclinations and his instincts come through here at the end of uh, part seven, that uh, through art life, that ultimately... It is a big difference that what Nietzsche thinks art can be aimed at and aesthetics can be aimed at is enhancing and providing an enticement to living and allowing us to deal with the that primordial pain and contradiction that he's talking about, but uh, continue to celebrate life and honor it and call it, make it into something beautiful. Um, in any case, the next sections we'll be getting into... Um, this this sections four through seven, I wanted to cover them all at once because they are really the most Byzantine, in my view, the most uh, labyrinthian. And um, I feel like I probably stumbled a couple times in the analysis here because it's like it, 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 I do. Like I'm speaking of myself here when I'm saying you're going to find your brain tied in knots. That's how my experience. Maybe there are people out there who are um, more smarter than me or more have more of a uh, taste or... Uh, talent for dealing in Hegelian or Schopenhauerian or German idealistic uh, sort of philosophical formulas who do not find this as difficult. But um, especially in like section six, we get into some very difficult um, stuff that I ultimately doesn't, this is the, this is my problem with it. I don't think it really goes anywhere, right? It's, uh, it feels like you're kind of wandering through a hedge maze and then you come out at the other side and you're like, I don't really see the point of that. Um, but strewn throughout, there are all sorts of wonderful gemstones. And then it culminates in that, um, passage on Hamlet, which is of immense importance. Um, oh, and I, uh, I didn't mention in human all to human about that passage of Hamlet. Um, just, this will be a final note. Uh, it's Nietzsche quotes, uh, Byron, uh, in one of his verses where he says, sorrow is knowledge. He who knows the most, must mourn the deepest over the failed truth. The tree of knowledge is not the tree of life. And that is, once again, a a sort of restatement of this idea of illusion and untruth as a condition for life, which would be one of Nietzsche's most important philosophical positions that's really key to understand 
to understand his whole corpus of works. And we find it right here at the end of section seven in his discussion of the Hamlet idea is um, that the glimpsing the <laughs> uh, unadulterated, raw, terrible knowledge uh, is not actually that actually is in inimical or deleterious to life and that without the veils of illusion action isn't possible and thus untruth may be required for us in order to live um of course it's interesting because in this very same chapter he seems to be implying that these periodic glimpses of the dionysian which he would consider to be some sort of approximation of a glimpse of the terrible truth to also be required for life and that it's through this continual combat and reconciliation of these two things that um we find life uh, redeemed uh, as an aesthetic phenomenon. Okay, so that was parts four through seven, and um, I guess we will end here, and I will see you all next time. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.